If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There is no point historians are even considering the question whether crusades are a good thing or a bad thing. That 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 seems to me to be um, sloppy self-indulgence, sort of um, condescending judgmentalism of the worst sort. That was Christopher Tyman talking about the Crusades. And I think what letters like this show is actually the sort of the human element of the opposition um, and, and the day-to-day concerns that they had. They were people making a living doing so in an absolutely terrible way, but still just people making a living. And that was Ryan Cronin discussing newly rediscovered letters that reveal opposition to the abolition of the slave trade. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of August 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. A lot of historical writing on the Crusades has focused on the military and political aspects of these events. But what went into actually organising a crusade? And how can that shape how we see the medieval world? Historian Christopher Tyerman tackles these questions and more in his new book, How to Plan a Crusade. And our reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with him to find out more. So what justifications were given for going on crusade? Well, going on crusade was, that, um, um, uh, was of course, uh, to some extent, a bizarre thing to do. Therefore, you have to identify why this cause of war um, uh, has, is, has an immediate impact and why you're, you're obliged to go. Mm. Um, this is true of all wars. You know, the, 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 you have to present you have to present the First World War as a as an existential threat. You have to present the Nazis as an existential threat. Um, so you have to present to to get maximum um, um, enthusiasm. Any war has to be presented as an existential threat in some in some way. With the Crusade, um, using the context of faith. Um, here was the Holy Land um, uh, that every week in the Mass you have a sort of vision of Jerusalem presented to you and elements of, of the life of Christ and, 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 and all that. Um, um, the, 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 this sort of a, a Sartre's religious nostalgia for a sort of idealised J- Jerusalem. Um, but so you have this idea that the Holy Land is part of the Christian's heritage. It is metaphorically the, the place where um, um, earth and heaven meets, the, the place of the resurrection, the place of salvation, the scene of redemption. Um, it's occupied by the, the, the infidel. Now, of course, that's been true by the late 11th century for, for the, since, the, since the 7th century. You have the political... Um, um, change of the invasion of the Near East by the Seljuk Turks. So you can present this because the 
Greek emperor has appealed for, for Western help. So you present this as a physical threat. You have these invaders, you have these people who are threatening your fellow Christians in the East, they're invading Byzantium, etc., etc. You also have the much wider existential threat to your religion. Hmm. Uh, the idea that um, um, uh, the word that is the, the, the Crusades coined, really, a Christianitas, which I suppose you could mean Christendom, has, as many medieval words do have, uh, a, a clever a dual meaning, i.e. it means Christianity and Christendom. So it means that your faith is threatened, but so is your territory. Um, you then have other more detailed ways of explaining why you should go on crusade. It's, you have um, a revenge, um, you have uh, the rightful reoccupation of Christian land, which is almost a legal category. Um, but of course, the, the, um, uh, the, the bull point is from right from the beginning, Urban II in 1095 says, this is what God wants you to do. Mm. This, of course, is a great difference between holy war, the crusade, and sort of just war, because this is not a legal category that this is the war is bad, but fighting a war um, can be mitigated because it's in a good cause, uh, a just cause. Holy war is a religious exercise as an obligation dictated by God. It's not a legal category at all. So to be a good Christian is what Urban II and his successors are saying. You, you ought to go on crusade. It's your obligation. Mm. This is very much the theme, particularly in the Third Crusade. This is very much em emphasised. So you have a whole range of propagandist um, um, tropes, if you like, that preachers and propagandists play on quite specifically. Um, and they target these sort of um, um, sensitive areas of the, where the, 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 the mass of the population, they hope, will respond to, to this. But they have to explain it. It's not something that people would just accept. They have to explain precisely what the threat is, why you as a Christian have to answer it in this particular way. Mm. So it's like presenting a case for any war. You've got to argue it, you know, where, whether you're urban... Um, the second of Clermont, or Tony Blair in the House of Commons talking about Iraq. Mm. Uh, the, 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 and, and some of the techniques are not dissimilar, perhaps. What kind of people went on crusade, and what would it have looked like to see these people coming? Right. Well, um, obviously, partly dependent on, on regions, but so far as one can tell from the, the sources, the social reach of crusading was very broad. So, um, you would obviously have the military elites, um, you'd also have urban elites, merchants, etc. Et, et and you would have their, their, their entourage, um, um, military households. Um, um, beyond that, you would, you, you would have um, the wider community who would be recruited um, uh, to fight as, as infantry. You have people who um, um, operate initially outside lordship or, or employment groups. So we have evidence of quite modest farmers, rich peasants um, who are raising money to, to go on crusade. Um, there's plenty of evidence of urban and probably also rural artisans um, who, of course, could actually hope to earn some money on on crusade. So, so the social reach um, is 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 very broad, mm. um, and obviously a a um, um, a poor pe uh, a poor peasant could go, but but he needed somebody else's funds or employment mm. from somebody else. So it it is socially quite um, uh, embracing. As I say, um, um, it's not just knights and other soldiers, the artisans of a whole range. Um, women, of course, go. The, the, the lists of crusaders from the late um, England of the late 12th century have about 10% women. Um, there's a shipload of crusaders from 1250. Um, where um, it's sort of 12 to 15% of, of women. And some of these women are going by themselves or in groups of women. They're not sh chaperoned. Mm. Um, um, women are perfectly entitled to take the cross. Um, uh, there's, there's plenty of evidence of, of, of female cr 
be crucifying our tie, be taken the cross. Um, Pope Innocent III, who was a great promoter of, of the crusade, actually allows rich women to uh, hire regiments of soldiers and take them with them. So they could be really powerful. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, um, so the, 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 there is obviously, well, the, 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 there is far more female agency than, than, than the sources really allow. Because the sources tend to deal with, with things operating in the public sphere and, uh, and women's agency tends not to be recorded in that way. Mm. Um, but obviously wives go. Um, preachers, of course, are very worried that wives are going to stop their husbands going. And there's a great sort of cliche about that. And so that, that whether that actually happened or not, who knows. But, um, but the involvement of society as a whole women as well as men, mm. and the consequences obviously for women left at home could be quite severe. Mm. Um, um, so it is, uh, in that sense, a very revealing of social structures, and it follows social structures. Can we possibly say how much a crusade would have cost? Is it, is it well, we, um, we have the accounts of Louis the Ninth. Um, um, and uh, we have various accounts of theorists in the late 13th, 13th, 14th century. Um, um, uh, each crusade obviously cost different things, but um, many times annual income, mm. uh, three, four, five times perhaps. Um, um, but given the fact that annual income then was based on landed income, um, that's not surprising because we're talking about having to convert land into cash. Um, um, so um, um, Louis the Ninth, um, uh, his, his, his accounts, um, you know, he's he, he's spending at least one and a half million livres. Wow. Um, um, but until he's captured and has to be ransomed in 1250, he's covering it. He's covering it by uh, extra taxes on his own lands, by church taxes, um, 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 by tallages on Jews, as well as credit. Um, a whole range of... Um, um, so he can actually raise that, mm. the, those sums. They're large sums, but they can be raised. Again, think later wars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what effect did the fact that these crusades took place over a huge geographical area have on the way they were planned and managed? Well, um, um, that's a very good question. The, 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 the elder coordination, if, I, if one's looking at these very big, large-scale crusades, what we now call the first, second, third, fourth, fifth crusades, um, um, co coordination was extremely difficult, but it was achieved that it, that, that um, um, Urban II set deadlines for when people went, muster points were set, the Crusaders all met at Nicaea um, um, about um, nine months or a year after some of them had left. Um, the, the Second Crusade again, um, uh, it took them about a year to get to the Holy Land, um, um, a, a year to prepare, a year to get there. Um, uh, there's a Rounds of diplomacy, um, um, meet, meet, meetings, both both big ritual occasions and more modest meetings. Endless letters and messengers going going to and through. There is coordination, uh, preparing for for markets. Either um, if you're going on land or preparing fleets, contracts with shippers like Genoa and Venice. Um, so the Third Crusade, we have much more evidence for. Um, it took the King of Germany um, um, a year to prepare and a year to get to um, the, the Near East by land. He again drowns, but his army gets there. Um, um, Richard I and Philip III of England, Philip II of France. It takes a bit longer um, because the Henry II dies, there are wars. But after the um, 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 Richard I comes to the throne, it takes essentially a year to, to prepare the crusade, a year to get to the Holy Land. What's interesting there is in 1190, he prepays the wages of his soldiers. 
he calculates on, on the exchequer records, he calculates how much the wage is going to be, and he takes with him, or the fleet he goes with him, the sum of money to pay for the next year. And hey presto, at the end of that year, they're in the Holy Land. Wow. It actually works. Um, so there is planning. Yeah. Um, it often doesn't work, <coughs> um, um, and coordination is difficult, but, but, but there is a practical intelligence, practical pl- pl- planning. People arrive in a fairly coordinated way. That's partly because there are only two seasons where you can actually get by sea to the Holy Land. Mm. But, but um, um, uh, it's not done by coincidence, it's not done by random, it's not done by chance. There, there is a pattern uh, to these campaigns and that is based on networks of, of communication back in, in the West. That, that are based on lordship patterns, re- regional links, links, monastic links, links between towns, uh, trade links, etc. Uh, uh, communities coming together because they are already in contact. Right, yeah. So they were organised. These were things were planned. Oh, yes, the thing. yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, how did they find their way is the other thing. How, how well, they, uh, they knew where they were going. Um, the, that uh, we have evidence of um, um, the use of maps the map survived from the 13th century, from the late 13th century. There's some evidence that, that, that uh, physical maps were, um, uh, uh, we, we, we used at the time of the Third Crusade. But they knew where they were going, um, um, not in a sense uh, in, in the way that, the, the, that we would, uh, through maps perhaps, but through their version of sat-nav. Um, um, in that you have people who tell them where, where, where to go. You yeah, have yeah. veterans. Um, that when you start to see itineraries, the, 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 they're organised in a linear way from town to town to town, just like sat-nav. You know, you're, 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 you're told where to go. There are di- diagrammatic maps, like the London Underground map. Um, um, that The idea that they set off over the horizon not knowing where, where to go is a convenient modern myth. It's simply untrue. They know where to go. There are veterans who who will take them. Um, they'll get local guides. They'll get lo- uh, from uh, Eastern Europe or Byzantium or the Italian uh, shippers. Um, 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 and as I say, uh, by the end of of the the thirteenth century, there's plenty of evidence of them using maps. Mm. And there are written accounts of journeys to the Holy Land. Uh, that specify exactly the, the the direction to go in the days between wow. pl- 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 places, and these exist from the twelfth se- century. So um, um, uh, they knew where they were going, yeah, and amazing. they knew how to get there. Yeah, the other thing, and they knew how long it was going to take. Yeah, yeah, um, is supplies, I suppose. Yeah, how how do they work out getting supplies? I mean, well, um, the, it, it it differs, but between whether you're going by land or whether you're going by sea. If you're going by land, you need to negotiate markets uh, with the indigenous rulers of the places you're, you're, you're travelling through. And this often causes trouble. Uh, the, the, the exchange rates um, get um, uh, very controversial. And there, there are lots of um, 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 violent clashes between crusaders and locals in market places in Eastern Europe and and Greece in the, the First Crusade, the Second Crusade, and the Third Crusade. Um, but at least you can live off the land, you can actually buy things, uh, and if, if you're on enemy territory, it's easier because you just take things. Mm. Um, <coughs> so that's, in a sense, quite, quite straightforward. Um, expensive, difficult, awkward, um, and the seasons, you know, it, it, if it's after the harvest, fine, if it's just before the harvest, things are scarce. Um, prices can be a problem, but one of the oddities about the, the Crusade is that a lot of the, the, the inflation is actually not caused solely by scarcity, but, but by an excess of cash. Okay. Uh, there, there's too much money chasing too, too, too few goods. Um, if you go by sea, of course, you've got to take quite a lot of stuff with you, and but you have to, because you you, you in the Mediterranean, and in the Atlantic, you don't go across open sea. You go from island to island, from port to port, partly because you need 
fresh water if you're carrying horses, mm. um, um, and you need to 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 to, to resupply. Um, so there, you have to prepare for um, uh, your supplies. And if you look at the contracts, um, um, the famous 1201 contract of the Fourth Crusade with Venice, details of the amount of wine that will be carried, the amount of ship's biscuit, or the ingredients to make ship biscuits, etc. Supplies are absolutely central. Yeah. And the, that logistical aspect dominates a lot of the accounts of Crusade, and certainly is very prominent in... Um, the archival evidence for the Crusades, if you look at the English Exchequer records for the Third Crusade, they're full of stuff about the, the sides of bacon, the, the whole cheeses, the, all that sort, sort, sort of stuff. And of course you also take with you um, um, weaponry, and Richard I famously takes his prefabricated castle from, from, from Sicily to, to, to the Holy Land. You take your trebuchets in bits and you, you assemble them um, when, when, when you get there. So these things are thought out because these things, the, the people who are leading their the, the crusades are members of a military aristocracy whose profession is that of arms. Yeah, yeah. That's what they do. They may not be very good at it, but that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. And um, and they think they know how to fight wars, mm-hmm. um, and they're quite quick learners. And uh, things like supplies are taken for granted. When things go wrong, they appear in the the, the chronicles sources. But the need for supplies is absolutely central, mm-hmm. and is recognised as such. And means are devised to ensure that there are supplies. I, I say contracts with the places you're going through or contracts with your shippers. Mm. Are there any characters that stand out for you as being particularly important or unsung in a way, I suppose? Well, um, I think that um, um, the unsung are the mass of the Crusaders um, who the physical conditions of going on crusade, even if you're just going on a ship, in the hold of a ship, there's you and the horses, and the, it's not a pleasant mm. um, experience. The, um, um, one should get sentimental about this, but, but, but the um, common experience of the common crusader, or person who goes on crusade, whether they've taken the cross or, or not, was, shall we say, strenuous. Um, um, and one thinks of that. Um, the 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 reality um, of going on crusade. There were compensations, so the camaraderie of, of army and all that. Other people one thinks of are the families left behind who suffer privation, um, who um, are, are abandoned. Again, that's mm. a cliche of warfare. Um, um, there are some people who intrigue one. But, but as I say, I mentioned before, this Shabbat by God, the people of Anselm. Um, um, the, the literate thinking lords, most of the Crusader lords would have been able to, to read and, and, and possibly write. They were, they were educated. Um, um, the sort of problems that, that, that they faced. Um, I suppose one's general reaction is schizophrenic that on the one hand um, I think you can see this in a lot in a lot of historians who've written about the, the crusades on, on the, 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 the one hand uh, the uh, acknowledgement of the intellectual physical efforts uh, the psychological stamina or, or, or lack of it of crusaders but of course, always um, um, that one thinks, well, you know, um, um, the, these are very much um, um, activities um, that are to some extent characteristic of a particular society. That is, of course, a very different society. Um, uh, there is no point historians are even considering the question whether crusades were a good thing or a bad thing. That 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 seems to me to be um, sloppy self-indulgence. Um, uh, sort of um, a condescending judgmentalism of the worst sort that doesn't help you understand um, the, the the historical reality. 
these are real people who are motivated by very different um, impulses, and those impulses are, to me at any rate, um, extremely repulsive and in many ways repulsive. Um, the, the the violence, the the intolerance, the uh, assumption of um, superiority, um, um, religious, racial, um, uh, moral. Um, because that's shared by the other side as well, by all sides. One of the things are victims, um, the victims of not just the, the Eastern Crusades, the, the destruction wrought um, uh, to Jewish communities uh, in Western Europe, um, to people in the Balkans, Latvians and Estonians, Prussians, um, um, that victims, I think, um, one can't escape from. Mm. Um, and one has to recognise without, again, that, that um, this attempt to recruit the Crusades in some kind of either moral superiority of Western Europe or moral inferiority of, of Western Europe or in a sort of clash of civilizations debate seems to be entirely fruitless and, and, and um, again, self-indulgent. Um, and just historically incorrect. If this book could change people's views of the Crusades and the period more generally, how would you like that to do? Well, they're linked. I think the, the, that um, the material side of organising the Crusade, the, the, the rational ba ba basis, um, um, the getting away from this straight jacket of spiritual versus ma 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 material, seeing the complexity and the nuances. Um, um, so people say the wars of faith and somehow putting me in, in a, a category of either admiration or lunacy um, or, or being alien. They, these aren't alien uh, ac activities. So I think setting the Crusades in a more reasonable, explicable, nuanced, um, believable context. But the Middle Ages, and this in a sense, does reflect a slightly presentist um, a point. Um, the, the, the Middle Ages um, uh, was a time of rationality as much as anything else. Um, the condescension that somehow it riddled with superstition, well, you know, um, 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 homeopathic medicine for God's sake. Um, 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 uh, the, the, that, um, um, to view the, the, the Middle Ages as a time when people did things for rational reasons and worried about it and thought about it. Life was difficult and they came up with rational solutions. Whether you're building wooden scaffolding or, 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 or whether you're, you're, you're wondering how to build a trebuchet or whether you're wondering whether, as King Amalek of Jerusalem did, whether there's any evidence outside the Bible for the truth of the resurrection. You are, you are asking serious questions about your actual world. Mm. They were doing it just as we're doing it. We're doing it with different knowledge base and different perspectives and different social economic environment. But we are asking questions that are, that are based on reason and rationality. There is a third point, I suppose, which I, since I end the book on, um, by doing that, you can then turn the lens back and look at yourself and say, religious war is not an irrational act. Therefore, if we're dealing with religious war in the 21st century, we shouldn't dismiss it as irrational. It is rational, and therefore reason needs to be used to combat it. That was Christopher Tyerman. How to Plan a Crusade, Reason and Religious War in the Middle Ages is published in September by Alan Lane. And you can read more from Matt's interview with Christopher in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on Anne of Cleves, the Blitz, the French Terror and the secrets of being a successful monarch. You can get hold of our September issue in all good news agents and digitally. And we're also continuing our trial whereby you can listen to the articles in the magazine. These audio versions can be found in our iPad and iPhone editions and on the website historyextra.com 
forward slash September audio. To give you a taster of this audio edition, here is an article entitled Death Camp Britons, written by Gavin Mortimer and read by Sally Bailey. Death Camp Britons. Gavin Mortimer tells the story of three men who found themselves in the Second World War's equivalent of Hell on Earth, a Nazi concentration camp. Bombardier Alf Jones was one of the old sweats of the 23rd Field Regiment, Royal Artillery. He'd enlisted in 1931, aged 17, and served three years in India before joining the reserve list in 1938. Returning to his native Port Talbot, Jones worked in the tin mines, but he re-enlisted on the outbreak of war. A few weeks later, at the end of September 1939, Jones and his regiment sailed for France and were ordered to dig in close to the Maginot Line. When the Nazi war machine rolled through the Low Countries into France in May 1940, Jones was one of scores of artillerymen captured. But not for long. The enterprising Welshman made his escape in Belgium while being transported to Germany. It was the start of a flight that would eventually end more than four years later with his execution in Mauthausen concentration camp. History has, for the most part, overlooked those unfortunate few Britons who were sent to the Nazi death camps. Most were members of Special Operations Executive, SOE, captured on missions to occupied Europe. But there was also a handful of soldiers and civilians transported to places whose names have become bywords for wickedness for no other reason than the Germans found them too hard to handle in ordinary camps. German Wrath Anthony Faramus didn't look like a troublemaker. Charming, good-looking and a popular figure in Jersey, the 21-year-old was working in the island's Miramar Hotel when the Germans invaded in July 1940. He didn't take well to the occupation, incurring the wrath of the Germans to such an extent that in late 1941 he was deported to Fort de Romainville on the French mainland as an undesirable. Faramus spent the next two years incarcerated in Romainville prison, but by the winter of 1943-44 the Germans needed all the manpower they could muster to help in their war effort, so Faramus was sent to Buchenwald in central Germany. Gone was the relative comfort of Romainville. Instead, recalled Faramus, we slept sardine-like, overwhelmed by the smell of human excreta and diseased bodies. Throughout the long nights, voices cried out in hunger, in fear, in pain. The days were a living hell. Inmates were set to work in the camp's stone quarry or sent to the subsidiary camps to help in the manufacture of munitions. Many dropped dead from exhaustion, Others killed themselves on the electrified fence and those too weak to work further were garroted in the camp's strangling room. In December 1944, Faramus was sent from Buchenwald to Mauthausen, situated in Upper Austria. By now he had learnt that British inmates were often singled out by the guards, so on arriving he passed himself as a Frenchman. It was a prudent move. Three months earlier, Alf Jones had arrived at Mauthausen. No longer the fit and feisty Welshman, he had been in German hands since his capture in Brussels in 1941. Interned first in Sachsenhausen concentration camp, Jones was classified as a political prisoner, the authorities believing him to be a British agent and not, as he presumably told them, an intrepid soldier who had passed himself off as a Belgian for more than a year. He was used as a human guinea pig, forced to march up to 15 miles a day, testing the durability of prototype army boots. After a spell in Allach, one of Dachau's subcamps, Jones was transported to Mauthausen in September 1944. By now suffering the effects of malnutrition, the Welshman was not fit for slave labour, so on the 9th of November, Jones was taken to the camp's execution room and shot in the back of the neck. Le Bandit Hopper At some point on its grisly journey through Nazi depravity, Jones might well have encountered Ian Johnny Hopper, a 30-year-old Englishman who for two years had waged a guerrilla campaign against the Germans. Hopper's family had moved to Normandy when he was a child, and he later married and went into business as a wireless repairman. When war came, Hopper, assisted by his French wife, began attacking German targets, setting fire to oil depots or blowing up railway lines. In time, he became bolder, assassinating enemy soldiers and French policemen. 
In its edition of the 17th of September 1941, the newspaper Le Journal de Normandie told its readers there was a reward of 10,000 francs leading to the capture of Le Bandit Hopper. He was caught in Paris the following year during a shootout with soldiers in which his wife, Paulette, lost her life. Hopper fired the bullet that killed the already seriously wounded Paulette to prevent her capture and torture at the hands of the Gestapo. Sent to Neuerbrem torture camp, Hopper was beaten by the guards after every RAF bombing raid on Germany. Eventually, he was taken to Mauthausen to work in the granite quarry. It had 186 steps up which we used to carry those big rocks on our shoulders, he recalled. The rule was that anyone who fell down on the steps would be beaten till he got up or he died. If he died, they threw him back down into the quarry and they had a horse and a cart that came every afternoon and collected the bodies. Hopper was lucky. Unlike Jones, his health never broke and he survived Mauthausen, as did Faramus, who died in 1990, the same year as he published his memoirs. Strangely, however, I was not embittered by my years in captivity, Faramus concluded. The isolation, the prejudice, the intimidation and the defiance at Camps Buchenwald and Mauthausen proved to be an important education for me. About the writer Gavin Mortimer is an author whose books include The Men Who Made the SAS, The History of the Long Range Desert Group, published by Constable in 2015. That was Death Camp Britons, written by Gavin Mortimer and read by Sally Bailey. And as I mentioned before, you can enjoy more audio content from our September issue on our iPad and iPhone editions and at historyextra.com forward slash September audio. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. A mass grave suspected to contain 30 victims of the Great Plague of 1665 has been discovered at Crossrail's Liverpool Street Station in central London. According to the Telegraph, the bodies were found during the excavation of the Bedlam Burial Ground, which began in May and will allow construction of an eastern entrance to the new station. The discovery of a headstone marked 1665 and the fact that all 30 bodies appear to have been buried on the same day suggests that the individuals were plague victims. The Bedlam burial ground is thought to contain the bodies of an estimated 30,000 Londoners who died during the 16th and 17th centuries. Jay Carver, the lead archaeologist for Crossrail, said, This mass burial so different to the other individual burials found in the Bedlam Cemetery, is very likely a reaction to a catastrophic event. Only closer analysis will tell us if this is a plague pit from the Great Plague in 1665, but we hope that this gruesome but exciting find will tell us more about one of London's most notorious killers. In other news, 700 people had to be evacuated from London's Bethnal Green this week following the discovery of an unexploded Second World War bomb. Families spent the night in a school hall after the £500 bomb was found in the basement of a building site in Temple Street on Monday afternoon. A 650-foot exclusion zone was set up around the device. The Ministry of Defence said the German air-delivered bomb could have caused, quote, mass destruction if it had detonated. The bomb which was found by contractors, was thought to have been dropped over the capital during German bombing raids in the early 1940s, but did not detonate, said the London Fire Brigade. Residents were able to return to their homes on Tuesday after the bomb was made safe and removed by the military. Meanwhile, the bell of sunken Second World War battlecruiser HMS Hood, 
which was once the largest warship in the world, has been recovered from the ship's wreckage in the North Atlantic. All but three of HMS Hood's 1,418-strong crew were killed when the ship was sunk in 1941 by the German battleship Bismarck in the Denmark Strait between Greenland and Iceland, The Guardian reports. The bell was last week recovered from the wreckage, which lay at a depth of 2,800 metres, using a remotely operated vehicle. A first attempt in 2012 failed because of poor weather conditions and technical difficulties. The bell is said to be in good condition, but it will be conserved over the course of a month. It will later be displayed at the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth. Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October, respectively. We have a great range of speakers that includes Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Alison Weir, Tom Holland and Helen Castor. Tickets are on sale now and you can get hold of them and find out more details at historyweekend.com. And many of the talks have already sold out, so do make sure to get your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. Now, it's easy to look back on the abolition of the global slave trade as being an inevitable event. Yet, as newly rediscovered documents now held at St John's College, University of Cambridge, show, slavery was firmly entrenched in 18th century society. Matt Elton headed to the college where he spoke to Ryan Cronin. What are these documents that uh, have been newly discovered? So um, the papers that have been newly acquired by the college, they're a collection of letters and business transactions relating to a Jamaica sugar plantation that was owned by a wealthy English landowner called William Philip Perrin. And the letters talk about the day-to-day running of the plantation, shipping manifests, uh, property disputes. But in amongst those, there are these details of the, again, very day-to-day kind of buying and selling of slaves as part of the the estate. Mm. And it's striking how day-to-day they're described as. What sort of things do they tell us? So William Philip Perrin um, owned the plantation but hired managers to oversee the the running of the estate. So they would correspond with him about profits, losses, acquiring new land, buying cattle and buying slaves to work on, on the land for him. And they would be described in exactly the same sort of terms as any other commodity. Um, so it's quite shocking, looking at it from sort of modern eyes, how commonplace and how day-to-day the, the transactions were that featured this, this human commodity. Mm. So when do these documents date from? So they're all from the late 18th century, um, from I think sort of the 1760s through to about the late 1790s. So they're almost exactly contemporary with the time when William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson were really founding the abolitionist movement here in Britain and setting up the anti-slavery societies, which I think is what makes them interesting because it shows really the opposition that they were up against Mm. because these documents are exactly contemporary. It shows how entrenched at that time slavery was and how it was seen as just another business issue. Mm. And they show how difficult it must have been to fight against a system that was so ordinary, I suppose, so normalised, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the, 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 it's twofold in that it's, it's normalised from the point of view of people who weren't involved in the slave trade themselves, who would have seen the cheap commodities that came from slave labour, so sugar and rum and molasses, um, which would have been sold quite cheaply in England because of use of slaves in Jamaica. But also it shows the sheer amount of wealth that's involved in this. Mm. Um, There's a list of 54 slaves um, for sale, which which Perrin's estate owner was basically asking, do you want me to buy these for you? And that's just one fairly routine business transaction. So it's huge sums of money and also fairly routine, as you say. Things are just happening all over the country, I suppose. All over the world, of course. And yeah, absolutely vast amounts of money involved. And you would have had this system whereby someone in London would have owned plantations around the colonies, because, of course, you're also at the height of the British Empire. And, I mean, I think Perrin owned two estates. Other landowners would have had considerably more. Mm. So every day you have this sort of thing happening of slaves being brought from Africa to Britain and then shipped off onto one of these plantations. 
and these kind of millions of pounds worth of, of money changing hands. So it, it's a really, as you say, very entrenched system and very difficult system that the abolitionists were up against. Mm. And I think what these letters show is actually what opposition they were facing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how, how well off was Perrin? How, how wealthy was he? Well, we don't know too much about Perrin himself, um, as there isn't an actual sort of college connection with him. And we acquired the letters from a, a book dealer um, to fit in with our own anti-slavery collection. But it's implied throughout that he was a, a very wealthy businessman, um, known throughout London as a gentleman of influence, who owned, like I say, two estates in Jamaica um, near Kingston, both of which were producing sugarcane that was being sold for rum. And in one letter, it mentions, his estate manager mentions that the the rum sales this year have brought in, I think, about £41,000, which is an equivalent of an absolutely ridiculous sum of money. It's about um, sort of 400000 plus in today's terms. Yeah, yeah. So it's a huge amount. Mm. Yeah. And, and so that's just kind of one product from one plantation making that much per year. So if you add that up over the sort of 30-year span that these letters cover, you are looking at a, a portrait of an incredibly wealthy and shrewd businessman. Mm. And the thing is also that it wasn't just a wealthy businessman who stood to lose out by the system being abolished, was it? No, and it's very easy to paint it as a very sort of black and white issue of having these, these very wealthy, in, influential figures campaigning to keep slavery for their own interest. But when you actually get under the surface, there's a lot more complexity to it because someone like Perrin would have employed estate managers and farmhands and sailors and dockhands to work for him. He didn't manage the plantations himself. So all of these people, this kind of vast workforce, as well as the the slaves that he owned, were dependent on that trade. If you were a, a relatively poor sailor and you made your living shipping slaves you were dependent on that. Mm. Likewise, if you were a dock worker or if you worked in a factory that required one of the products that was produced by slavery, cotton or sugar, you could be earning a pittance yourself. But without the slave trade, you would also be out of a job, which is why there was a lot of popular opposition to it. Right. Um, okay. It isn't just as, as, as straightforward as thinking it's, it's the rich versus the abolitionists. Because it's quite easy in hindsight to see this as a simplistic good versus evil almost mm. story because we now see what the right side of the story is in a way. Um, do you think this changes that in some way? I think that looking back over 200 years after the abolition bill, it is very easy to see quite a triumphalist narrative. It's obvious in hindsight that the abolitionists were on the right side of history and it's almost inevitable, it seems, that good would have triumphed at some point. Which I think is not a bad way of looking at it. Of course, the slave trade was an appalling moral evil and, and a very dark chapter in British history. But there was a lot more complexity to it than just this this very straightforward black and white good versus evil kind of narrative. And I think what letters like this show is actually the sort of the human element of the opposition um, and, and the day-to-day concerns that they had. They weren't pantomime villains. They were people making a living, doing so in an absolutely terrible way, but still just people making a living. And I think that what these letters show, not to sound as if there's any sort of sympathy towards the slave trade from them, but they show the, the complexity and the real-life issues of both sides. Mm. I think they add some depth to the story. That we should try to understand where people were coming from, even mm. if we judge them differently today because of our different standards, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think without, without understanding kind of why people would have supported slavery and why people would have opposed Wilberforce and Clarkson and the abolitionist movement, you end up with a very blinkered kind of view of history. Mm. Um, and showing that this is what people were up against. This is how commonplace and how entrenched the system was and how slaves were thought of as just another commodity, it shows why it took the abolitionists over 20 years of of solid campaigning and hard work to reach the abolition bill in 1807, and then 
more campaigning and hard work for slaves to actually be freed, which didn't happen until 1833. Mm. Um, it very much wasn't a straightforward issue that could be solved overnight. No, and it makes their work even more bold in a way because they had to change this whole system. Absolutely. Um, and there was a lot of opposition to them from people invested in the system. Obviously, in Parliament, there was a lot of opposition to Wilberforce. Um, various MPs would have probably had business interests that relied on the slave trade. And on the streets, as I was saying, some sort of more ordinary people who were involved in it, like people who worked in the docks. Um, there was an attempt made in Liverpool when Clarkson visited to gather evidence about the slave trade to actually drown him because okay. he was asking too many questions. Um, so it, looking at, at that kind of opposition, it does show their triumph, I think, all the more, because it shows that they were up against this really quite vicious, quite personal opposition from people at all levels in society. Mm. And the fact that Clarkson managed to found these sort of small grassroots anti-slavery societies in towns like Bristol and Liverpool that basically depended on the slave trade for their economy is a fabulous achievement. Mm. It really is, when you consider how many people would have lost their jobs would have been isolated from their community, would have probably been physically assaulted for associating with the anti-slavery movement. It's, it, it really brings home the battles they face, I think. So what are this particular college's connections to this story? St John's College is the undergraduate college of both William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson. Uh, they both studied here. Wilberforce came up in 1776 and Clarkson in 1779. So there was an overlap of their, their time as students, although there isn't actually any evidence that they knew each other as undergraduates. They sort of bumped into each other later on in life due to this shared cause. But obviously, as their, their old college, we're very proud of our association with those two figures. And it was the university that actually sparked, particularly Clarkson's, interest and passion in the anti-slavery campaign, because... Um, he had to write an essay for a university essay competition. He won this essay competition the previous year. He wanted to win it again. He was that sort of very high-achieving student. And it just so happened that, that this year, the topic for the essay was, is it right to make slaves of people against their will? So it was literally just in researching that as an academic exercise that Clarkson, who previously hadn't had no exposure to slavery, realised the, the true horror and the true extent of what was going on. And it became so much more than just winning an essay competition for him. It became his life's work and his life's cause. So we, we like to share some of the, <laughs> some of the credit for, <laughs> for inspiring um, what, what the abolitionists did. Because it sparked this, this, whole, this whole movement, this, this kind of almost chance event, I suppose, mm. this essay competition. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the vice-chancellor of the university who set the essay was Peter Peckard, and he was uh, an anti-slavery sort of sympathiser himself. So when he was given the chance to actually think of an essay topic for people to think about, that, I think that was, that was probably Peckard's way of actually getting ideas out there to a young, eager audience of, of undergraduates, you know, brilliant minds who could then take it and, and run. That's very cool. It's a cool thing to do. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a fabulous way of disseminating ideas. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that really did spark certainly Clarkson's life work, life's work, mm. founding anti-slavery societies as a result. It's amazing, yeah. It's, they were very different as students, Clarkson and Wilberforce, and I think that shows through in their approaches afterwards. Okay. Um, Wilberforce obviously gets a lot of the plaudits in history. He was the MP making speeches in Parliament, campaigning, very much the public face of the abolitionist movement, whereas Clarkson was behind the scenes doing this evidence gathering, asking questions, writing letters. And as students, they were very much that sort of person. Wilberforce was... He came from a more wealthy family than Clarkson, so he didn't have the same sort of pressure to achieve. So he's known for spending a lot of his time going to social events and, and parties, and his, his recorders always having a, a fire and a great Yorkshire pie and some beer in his rooms. <laughs> Amazing. You know, he's, he's very much the, the socialite student. Yeah. Whereas Clarkson um, came in on a scholarship, and he was much more driven by academia and was, was a brilliantly dedicated student, getting firsts in all his exams, winning university essay competitions several years in a row, mm. staying on for further study. So you can, I think you can see the developments of their character 
from quite an early age that would have informed the different approaches they took. So from their time here, you can trace their later trajectory? I think you can. I think you can. Um, And I think it's, it's fascinating to see that those two approaches were so different but so complementary. Hmm. You yeah. really did need both. Hmm. Without the evidence base, you wouldn't have had the case that would have been made in Parliament by Wilberforce. But also without a good orator, you would never have, the evidence base would never have been heard. Yes. Yeah. So they, they very much dovetailed. Um, in terms of these particular papers, like I say, the Clarks, uh, sorry, the, uh, the college doesn't actually have a connection with the estate of William Philip Perrin. Um, we do hold quite extensive collections on the abolitionist movement, thanks to our connection with Clarkson and Wilberforce. Um, and our special collections librarian just happened to see that these particular papers were on sale um, through a rare books dealer. I think they had previously previously been part of a larger kind of estate collection. And she, she swept on them as, as being the perfect thing to add this depth and add this extra context and colour to our own anti-slavery collection by showing this kind of often unspoken side of the story of the business interests that kept slavery alive for as long as it was. So we, um, we sort of snatched them up, really, and I thought that they'd, be, they'd make a perfect addition to particularly our educational outreach when we teach about slave trade abolition with school children in GCSE to show them that these documents, these lists of, of names and prices, show the other side of the story. It's mm. a good point, actually. How, how would you like these documents and the collection more widely to change the general public understanding of of slavery? I think I would like to see that um, these documents would engage people with the other side of the story. I think they would provide a a depth and a context and a flavour to what can otherwise be a very simplistic narrative. Um, I I hope that they'd make people think and make people realise that there was this this whole vast sort of international system of business in place that had, had been going for at least 100 years by the time the abolitionists came on the scene, mm. that they had to fight against and actually sort of tear down piece by piece, which is why they had to do it so slowly, um, and why the first thing very strategically they attacked was the trade itself. You know, stop the ships coming in, and then later they can actually attack slave ownership Um, because when 1807 the bill happened in 1807 if you owned a slave that you bought prior to 25th of March 1807 you could still keep them Mm. it wasn't until the 1830s 1833 that slaves were actually set free so it took a long time this is a long process very very long process and certainly in in our work with schools a lot of people wonder why it was such a long process because looking at it now it's obvious the the moral dimension is obvious Mm. But, of course, a lot of the arguments that people on the pro-slavery side were making were economic arguments, not moral arguments. Yeah. Their, their comments were that people like, for instance, William Philip Perrin were bringing in millions of pounds into the British economy as a result of this. And if slavery was suddenly stopped overnight, where would that go? People would lose jobs. Where would we be as a country? That was the, the economic argument that they were facing. And that's really, I think, why progress was so slow. And what these these papers also show, just in terms of the sheer sums of money involved, is that if you compare the influence of a wealthy businessman or a a, a sort of collective of of wealthy businessmen with these kind of small-town, grassroots, anti-slavery letter-writing campaigns, I think it's amazing that they actually got as far as they did. Mm. Because obviously the, the slave owners and the people whose livelihood depended on it had a lot of power and influence to exert, a lot of financial influence to exert in Parliament that I think is often not overlooked, but possibly not quite given the, the recognition it deserves as being a very long-term obstacle. Um, and also just the commonplace nature of it. Yeah. This is the other thing. They had, it wasn't just that they were fighting these kind of vested interests. They were trying to change attitudes and kind of win hearts and minds from people who either wouldn't have thought about it at all if they weren't actually involved in slavery. It would have just been something that happened elsewhere. Or people who just saw it as another commodity. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we're, we're selling rum, we're selling sugar, we're selling cotton, we're selling slaves. 
And it's that kind of commonplace day-to-day attitude to it. It, it. it seems really callous to modern eyes, really appalling, that you see in these, these letters when slaves are, are spoken about in the same breath as other commodities and where Perrin's estate manager advises him to actually buy 50 or 60 slaves to work the land on one of his estates for sugar because that would be cheaper than buying cattle. Hmm. Um, I mean, are, are, are these documents particularly striking examples of the kind of business documents that you would find from the period, do you think? I think they're fairly typical. Okay. Um, a lot of these business documents don't seem to have survived. I think they're quite ephemeral. Hmm. I mean, they are just, just correspondence, after all. And receipts and bills of sale may not have been kept. Because why would you keep something so Well, exactly, yeah. why yeah. would you? And, you know, you throw away a shopping receipt after you use it. It's, it's much the same sort of thing. Um, but I think they, they are outstanding in that they're not outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. they're shocking in how commonplace and ordinary these kind of things would have been. Estate managers in Jamaica, on the plantations, writing to the absentee landlord living in London, updating him on profit and loss and suggesting that we purchase X number of, of field slaves, X number of carpenters, would have been very day-to-day. Mm. I don't personally know of that many that have survived now um, and are being used in research collections in quite the same way that ours are now. But I would be very surprised if they were particularly harsh or particularly callous compared to just how the general business attitude would have been at the time. If you could somehow travel back in time to this period mm-hmm. um, and ask somebody a question, what, what would you ask, do you think? The people I'd be interested in talking to would actually be someone like Perrin's employees. One of his estate managers was a chap called Sutherland who wrote a lot of the, the correspondence. I'd actually be interested in talking to him because he's, he's the middleman. He's not either the wealthy vested interest business owner or the, the dedicated anti-slavery campaigner. He's probably a fairly middle-class, ordinary chap who has got a relatively cushy job living and working on a plantation in Jamaica. And I, I think I'd like to ask him if, if he ever actually had a moral qualm about this. Because his letters don't imply that he ever would. Mm. When he writes back to, to Perrin in London that you know, I've scouted around and found a really good deal that's on offer of this, this gang of slaves, here's a list of them, do you want me to buy them on your account? I don't get the impression that he ever saw what he was doing was wrong. But then, given that he would have lived on the plantation itself, unlike the landowner, he would have seen what was happening. He would have seen how the slaves were being treated, often very brutally by their managers. And I would like to ask, did that ever keep him awake at night? <laughs> Finally, I, I guess, uh, what sense of the larger world, the, you know, the social world, do we mm. get from these documents? Well, taken together um, in context with the, the other material that we have on slavery, I think these documents paint a picture of a time when... For a lot of people, it was almost a golden age. The British Empire was at its height. Um, the transatlantic slave trade was at its height. Cheap commodities were coming in from the, the colonies that we would never have been able to afford otherwise. Access to luxury goods like sugar coming in at absolutely knockdown prices. And it paints a picture of this world that is almost completely, perfectly set up to benefit British people on this very, very dark underbelly of what's actually happening that most people would have ignored. It reveals, I think, not... I don't want to use the word corruption, but it reveals the kind of amoral underpinnings of what otherwise might have been quite a glorious society. Um, I think it shows that the, the slave trade wasn't just a a problem to be fought in Bristol and Liverpool and London. It affected, obviously, Africa, the the British Empire colonies, the New World in America, and it was very much a global concern. That was Ryan Cronin from St John's College, University of Cambridge. 
You can read more about this story in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about the building of ancient cities, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 